The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. When we look at what are predictors of happiness, a sense of connection is one of the best predictors that we can find across countries, across cultures. Having a sense of connection with other ones is often one of the keys to happiness. Hey, everyone. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, and this is Everyday Better, a self-improvement podcast where every week I sit down with some of the world's brightest minds and bravest hearts to learn how we can improve ourselves, our relationship to others, and the world around us. Before we dive in to today's episode, I have an ask of you. Myself and my team would love to hear what you think of our show and what would make it even more valuable for you in 2024. So if you're open to taking just a couple of minutes, we'd love for you to take our anonymous listener survey at www.linkedin.com slash everydaybetter. That's www.linkedin.com slash everydaybetter. All right, on to the episode. So there are times I want to explain something I'm experiencing or need, but I can't quite find the words. Or maybe to be more specific, I can't find the English words. And this year I was heading into winter and feeling a bit uneasy, a little bit concerned. How was winter going to be? I'm a Californian living on the East Coast. And don't get me wrong, I think winter can be a really beautiful time for connection, for sharing with our loved ones. But it can also feel isolating and lonely and even a little dark, especially after the holidays, in my experience. So I needed to know how to do this better. How do we prepare for winter? And in came Hige, or Higgy, or Haga. <laughs> we all pronounce it wrong, but you've probably seen it. It's spelled H-Y-G-G-E. It's a Danish word that translates, though not completely, to a quality of coziness and comfortable conviviality that engenders a feeling of contentment or well-being. The Danish prepare for their cold, dark winters. At tops, they have about 17 hours of darkness in the month of December. So they don't shy away. They burn candles. They eat good food. They invite people into their cozy homes. And they embrace Hygge. That's the right pronunciation. So I'm talking to author of the book with over a million copies sold, The Little Book of Hygge, and founder of the Happiness Research Institute, Mike Viking. He's done so much research on happiness and has, of course, immense knowledge on Hygge. And it's my hope for all of us that we can use his understanding to prepare for and embrace the winter season, both metaphorically and literally. So curl up, get cozy, and let's hear what Mike is up to. My entire career is basically dedicated to three fairly simple or complex questions, depending on, on where you look uh, at it. Uh, so I, I try to figure out together with my team, how do we measure happiness or the good life? Uh, secondly, why is it that some people are happier than others? And thirdly, what can we then do to improve quality of life? Love that. Talk to me about happiness, though, because I think actually a lot of the challenge comes for people when they try to understand what happiness is and what it is not. So how would you define that? 
I mean, to, to me, happiness is a dish with many different ingredients on it. One of them is a sense of meaningfulness. You know, Aristotle talked about that more than 2,000 years ago. I think that's still a key component in happiness. But I think it's also beyond that sense of purpose or meaning in life. I think it's also a feeling of joy, um, positive emotions, and the sense of satisfaction with your overall life. So mm -hmm. super wide, but I think we need that wide definition to capture all the different sort of angles um, and perspectives that people have on happiness. Also, when, when we ask people, what is happiness to you? We do that in the Happiness Museum here in Copenhagen, and people write their answers down on post-its. We also see a, a jungle of, of, of different answers. Um, there's a lot of relationships, you know, moms, dads, husband, wives, uh, sons, daughters, uh, friends. Uh, there's, you know, a lot of people writing music. There's a lot of people writing food, you know, pizza night, mom's apple crumble. <laughs> uh, there was one person writing, happiness is a good quality lawnmower and a big lawn to mow. <laughs> and the older I get, the more I get that answer. Um, but the, They're probably the not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but the point is, you know, happiness is, is, is often many different things to different people. So we need this wide definition of happiness. And sometimes people get scared of that because how do we then sort of use it in a scientific way? Mm -hmm. And what we need to do there is we, we simply just need to break it down and then look at the smaller uh, components it consists of. And it's, it's something we are familiar with doing when we look at other complex uh, phenomenons. If we talked about how's the US economy doing, we would break that down into you know, inflation, uh, unemployment rate, mm -hmm. uh, interest rate, GDP per capita, growth. And that gives us a language to talk about how is the American economy doing. So that's also what we need to do with happiness. We need to talk about meaningfulness, as you're doing on this show. We need to talk about, did we experience joy yesterday or did I laugh today? Do I have a sense of connection with other people? Um, so I think we need to sort of cover different areas of that spectrum. I like the wide definition because it gives us lots of ingredients to work with. And it also, I think it also allows space for the different experiences we have. Um, so if you were to walk up to someone right now and say, are you happy? I don't know that we could answer that. I think people have a challenge with figuring out what the definition of happiness is, but then also pinpointing exactly if in that moment they feel happy and actually the way that I, I got to you and, and the reason I really wanted to talk to you is because I am from California originally and coming to the East Coast and going anywhere where there's a, a true change in seasons. Something I discovered at first was how much I loved winter in New York. What you learn as you stay longer, if you're not as familiar with it, is magical in November, December, January a little bit, and then February is like the longest month of the year and everyone's waiting for spring. <laughs> and so if you had asked me last December if I were happy, I would have said no. And I was allowing a lot of this season, the season outside, and then also things that were happening in my own life to make me feel, quote unquote, unhappy. And, you know, as I was talking to the show's producer, we were talking about winter and how I was trying to set myself up for a better winter, but I was also like dreading it. She said, you should just hug your home. And I was like, what are what I, I don't even fully understand. <laughs> and now I now that I do and I want you to talk all about it. I'm like, oh, I can go into winter like the Danish do fully prepared <laughs> with a million candles and blankets. And like I have a bunch of knitting things set up for myself so I can 
really actually get cozy in a season that I would typically say is not a quote unquote happy season. Talk to me about Huga. Tell me if I just said it wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I think your Danish is excellent. Well done. Um, Yeah, I think I think the best short definition is the art of creating a nice atmosphere. Um, It has to do with connection. It has to do with feeling consciously cozy. Uh, It has to do with, you know, making the best of the situation. And I think that's why it's relevant for winter. Danes, we have hygge throughout the year, but it's a survival strategy for winter. It's making the best of the situation. It's you know, putting on the simmering stews and enjoying a glass of wine and a good book by the window when there's a rain and storm outside. So it's basically going a Game of Thrones on uh, on the seasons, right? It's it's saying winter is coming and it's going to be great. And <laughs> mm-hmm. um, one of the anecdotes I, I typically tell to explain people what Hugo is. Um, happened a few years ago in Sweden with a group of friends where we had been out hiking in December and, and came back to the cabin in the afternoon as, as the sun was setting. And we got in, got into our comfy clothes. We got the fire going in the fireplace. Uh, we poured some wine. We had prepared a stew. So we got that on the stove and that started to boil. So those were sort of the sounds you could hear, the fire in the fireplace, the stew boiling. And, and we were relaxing, enjoying each other's sort of silent company. And then one of my friends said, could this be any more hygge And then one of the, the girls said, yes, if there was a storm outside. Because hygge is also this feeling of being sheltered from the outside. So hmm. it is preparing for winter and knowing that you got things, you know, under control. But just, just to sort of go back, I wanted to, to comment on what you said. If people are asking me right now, Am I happy? I don't know, but it goes up and down. It goes up and down in your life. It goes up and down in my life. And it goes up and down in everybody's lives when it comes to happiness levels. And that's the interesting, I think, uh, area to explore. Because if we just ask you now, are you happy? That's one data point. And that's interesting to hear. But even more interesting is if we ask that on a daily basis over the next 10 years, because then we get to understand, is Leah happier on Fridays than she is on Mondays? Is mm-hmm. Leah happier when she goes to the park in uh, New York than compared to the, the office? And researchers have done that, collected millions and millions of data points to understand under what circumstances do people thrive, under what circumstances do people feel happier? And we see a lot of things you would expect. You know, people are typically happier on Fridays and Saturdays than they are on Mondays and Tuesdays. Shocker. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Big Dana, for that nugget of wisdom. Yeah. Uh, people are happier in countryside uh, when they're parked by the sea than they are in, in, in urban environments. So I think that's the key to good happiness research, that we follow large groups of people over time and ask the same questions again and again. Mm-hmm. Because then we bypass that we might have a different perspective on exactly what happiness is because it's your perspective that I'm interested in and I want to understand under what circumstances do you feel happier? You know, you made me think about this is so random, but I've been going to shows on Broadway in New York, which I can't believe it took a decade, but here we are. So I went to go see Into the Woods and there's a line in this song and it's the song's called Moments in the Woods and 
the lyric goes, um, if life were made of moments, then you'd never know you had one. Um, and so the idea is like there is good and bad, but you only know it's kind of like the saying you only know the sunshine if you've seen the rain. And so as you're talking about happiness, I am wondering people find they're happier, you know, in the countryside or maybe happier at the park or whatever it is. Does that hold over time or is it that we have to have difficulty in order to understand and to really like integrate and register that we're happy? It holds over time or at least it holds over large groups of people. Some of, some of the biggest studies have used um, 165,000 people in the UK to understand where are people more or less happy. Mm -hmm. um, some things we are less sure of. For example, there's a lot of debate whether there is a U-shaped curve in terms of happiness and age. Mm. So a lot of studies have shown uh, until recently that people, when they're young, report high levels of happiness. And when they're old, report high levels of happiness. Oh, but God. in their mid-40s, <laughs> mid-40s is the low point. Actually, I'm 44, which oh, wow. is, statistically speaking, the global low point for happiness. So it's... And I'm how are at, you doing? I'm at rock bottom, apparently. <laughs> uh, but, but the good news is it's, it's, it's getting better from tomorrow. But the question is, does that hold over time? Because maybe it's a generational thing. So we won't know until the young people that are young today are old, whether that sort of U-shape uh, is, is something that we can see across generations. We're going to take a short break, but I'm pausing at this idea from Mike. How often do we take a moment of emotion and expand its effects into a day, a month, years, or even decades? I recently learned that studies show we actually only experience emotions for about 90 seconds. After that point, we're simply experiencing the stories and the meaning we create around that emotion and whatever triggered it. So this isn't to oversimplify, though, the impact of tough experiences on the brain and the body, but it is to say, try not to let one data point be the story you tell about the entire graph. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One.
And we're back with Mike Viking on Huga, which has sort of become a sensation in the last few years. So I wrote about Huga first back in 2016. The little book of, of Huga, it was called. And I think it's been translated to 38 languages. And I think it was because we gave a name to an emotion that people had already been experiencing, but didn't know there was a name for. So Hygge happened everywhere. It happened in the US, it happened in, in Denmark, it happened in, in Sweden, and it happened in Australia. But Danes had a word to describe that situation. And that's what we gave people back in, in 2016 uh, with the book. I remember one uh, French lady wrote me she wrote, I've been having Hugo all my life. I just didn't know there was a word for it. Hmm. And she wrote, earlier I would have had an afternoon with my two kids and we would have been on the sofa with some biscuits and some tea. And I would have called that a lazy afternoon. Now I call it a hugely afternoon. Mm. And I thought that's great that we removed the guilt from what should be a nice activity with your kids. And Hugo is about this sort of, how do we create a nice atmosphere? And, and the new book I've written, uh, My Hugo Home, is about... How do we turn a house into a home? How do we make it a place of warm atmosphere, of connection? And the idea for that book came when a Canadian guy told me he had read the original Hugo book. And there's a lot of focus on lighting. There's a lot of focus on candles in the book because candles have a big impact on the atmosphere in a room. So he went out and he bought some candle holders and he started to light candles for dinner at home with his wife and uh, kids. They had three teenage sons. And when he started to light the candles for dinner, the teenagers, they started to tease their dad. You know, dad, what's going on with the candles? Do you want to have some romantic time with mom? Should we leave? <laughs> but he told me, now the boys, they actually light the candles for dinner. And it became this ritual of family dinners. And most importantly, he says, our family dinners now last 15 to 20 minutes longer because the candles puts the boys in a storytelling mode. So instead of just sitting down, shoveling down their food, they sit down, they sip their wine, and they talk about their day. Hmm. So I thought, isn't it interesting how a little change around the dinner table, a simple thing like a candle changes how a family interact. And what else can we do to change how we act? How, what else can we do to stack the deck in our favor when it comes to sort of the architecture of happiness? I love that. And I, you said the architecture of happiness, which just the idea of being able to be an architect of your own life and the experience of said life. I think a lot of us spend much of our time concerned about the things out of our locus of control and not aware of how much power we have and also how simple things can be. Like the idea of just, you know, I found myself getting so excited putting candles in my virtual basket to order because I could imagine what they would look and feel like in my space. The idea that those children became storytellers and stayed at dinner longer and so that extended and heightened connection is such a simple lever that we can pull, which I think many times and especially today with technology, with everything that we have, we're looking for every possible lever. It's getting more and more complicated, but Part of what I feel like you're saying is just that huga is simplicity. It is simplicity. And, and I think it's also embracing that we can actually sometimes decouple wealth from well-being. That happiness doesn't have to come with a price tag. 
I also try to explain what Hugo is about by saying that Hugo is the good life on a low budget. Hmm. So it's simple pleasures. It's, you know, baking your own bread and enjoying the smell and taste of that. It's enjoying a good book by the window when there's a storm outside. It's, it's understanding that often the good things in life are, in fact, free. But I think also if we can sort of zoom back a little bit, I think we need to understand that we need to look at happiness the same way we look at health. That there are some things that we have control over with our health and with our happiness. When it comes to health, I can choose to smoke or not. And I know what's best for my health. I can also choose what I spend my time on, which is going to impact my happiness in different ways. But there's also our surroundings. You know, where you live in the US is going to impact your health, your longevity, the quality of the healthcare in your city, in your state, the level of air pollution in your city, that's mm -hmm. going to impact your, your health. And also your happiness is going to be impacted by where you live, where you're born in the world. There's a reason why we often see the Nordic countries doing really well in happiness rankings and where you live within that country. But also if you zoom in on your street, you know, whether you consider your neighbor a good friend, whether you have dinner with your neighbors, whether you borrow tools from each other, that is actually impacted by the street design. You are far more likely to be good friends with your neighbor if you live in a cul-de-sac. So the way you design your cities, the way you design your streets, the way you design your home is also going to impact your behavior and what you do and your happiness levels. And I think the candles around the dinner table is a great example of that. Mm. You know, I, you're reminding me of a time of five years ago or so. I was living in San Francisco. I stayed just for a year, and I used to call it the worst year of my life, like the most miserable year. I was living in an apartment. I had four roommates. I didn't like San Francisco. I didn't love where I lived. I didn't have a whole bunch of friends in the area. My family wasn't too far away. But I had had these really high expectations when I moved there for what it would be like. And then I got there and it was like almost every expectation fell through the floor. The job I was in, I didn't love. I mean, I had like financial trouble. There was so much stuff. And so I, I definitely became depressed. And at the same time, I kind of made up, if I'm really honest with myself, I made up that there was nothing I could change about my situation. And it, it was actually that deep low that brought me to where I am now, which is a very different place. But it took a while. And so as you're describing this, I'm thinking about how many people, number one, may feel like right now, whatever situation they're in, they can't change. For me, it was like I couldn't get out of the apartment that I was in. I had to stay in that lease or it would have cost me a lot of money. You know, I couldn't leave San Francisco at the time. I couldn't. I couldn't. I couldn't. I, that's like kind Whoa. of what was rolling around in my mind. But as we're talking and I, of course, I know this now, but I'm like, I could have. You know, like there were so many things I could have done that I chose not to do. But in the moment, it didn't feel like a choice. And in the moment, I was super unhappy. That makes a lot of sense. Also, if you had this expectation of San Francisco and your life there being all perfect. Um, mm -hmm. And not that people shouldn't have hopes and high hopes for the future, but expectations matter. And one of my favorite studies actually looks at how people who support different football teams, how they react when their teams wins or loses. And can see, yeah, okay, when, when Leah's uh, favorite football team won, she was happier for about four hours. But when they lost, she was much less happy than 
compared to being happy when they won. So we, we can see people hate losing more than they like winning. There's a loss aversion. Mm. But we could also go back in time and say, did Leah expect her favorite football team to win or lose based on the book uh, making odds at the time? And you can see if people expected their team to win and they then lost, then the loss was even worse for their happiness. So expectations matter. And that's one of the, I think, challenges we have as a species. Mm -hmm. And another challenge in, in, in that same sort of field is what we in happiness research call the hedonic treadmill meaning that we're really good at raising the bar for what we feel we need in order to be happy. Mm -hmm. And we're really good at setting goals. And sometimes we reach that goal and we accomplish things and we get that new title or that apartment in San Francisco or job in San Francisco. And then we might be happy with that for a while, but then you know we find another goal. So I'm fortunate to be a happiness researcher that bursts people's bubbles, but there's no one thing in life that we can accomplish that is going to make us permanently happy. And isn't that a good thing? I think the awareness of it is a good thing. Yeah. Because it forces us to embrace that old cliche of enjoying the journey and not the destination. Because there's no one title, there's no one private jet or whatever people dream of that is going to make people permanently happy. And I think, you know, acknowledging that the hedonic treadmill exists and embracing that the that we really need to enjoy the journey is 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 really important. So let me ask you this like when things aren't good quote unquote in life when circumstances our external environment isn't quote unquote good or isn't what we expected should we expect that we should be able to cultivate happiness within ourselves anyway should we cultivate hugga and like coziness and get cozy with that like what's the what's the real expectation we should have so that we're approaching difficulties or moments of unhappiness in a prepared and like aware way of where we should be getting to emotionally? I think we should do what, what you did in San Francisco. I think we should be aware of our emotions. You said you, you felt unhappy in San Francisco. That's the first step to doing something about it. And then you, you, know, you, you beat yourself up over the fact that you didn't do something right away, but eventually you acknowledge the, the, the issue and change your circumstances. So I don't think we should gloss over when we are unhappy. I think that's an important emotion to have as well. And hopefully we can then find uh, ways out of that. And that's sort of the, the sort of bigger unhappiness. But there's also sort of the, you know, the bad days or the events that can you know, perhaps make us, make us grumpy, like you know, missing a, a flight um, or being stuck in traffic. What I try to do there is I, I, you know, I, ask, I ask myself six months from now, is this going to matter? Is this going to impact my quality of life? And most mm -hmm. often it's not. And that sort of helps me sort of get over myself in, in, in those situations. Yeah, it makes me think it's like, I can be unhappy in the moment and life still be good, right. which is why I love the field of positive psychology, because it's like, what is the good life versus what is my moment of, you know, my hedonic pleasure moment? And I'm not seeking just pleasure. I'm trying to understand the grand scheme of things. Am I feeling like I'm flourishing? Am I thriving? And letting that sort of be a barometer versus in the moment and then taking the downward spiral, which we all do so often. I do it a lot. You know, it's like the one thing and the other thing and the other thing. And then we've piled a bunch of things on that make us, quote unquote, feel unhappy. But in truth, we've just attached ourselves to moments instead of zooming out and saying, but in the grand scheme, life is still good enough. Right. Mike, is there good enough? Is their best? I think about, you know, people who say, I'm happy enough. 
I'm okay enough. Would you call that the same thing as satisfaction or contentment? Or do we also sometimes like hide from the possibility of being happier because we don't want to have high expectations for life? <laughs> I, I, I don't think we should beat up contentment. You know, I think contentment is a very good foundation for being happy. I don't think we should let perfect be the enemy of the good. I think there's always going to be something, right? There's always going to be something that we can focus on that irritates us or things we should have done or things that could be better. There's life and it's messy and it's chaotic. Mm -hmm. And that's the human experience. And I don't know anybody, our listeners might, but I don't know anybody who are having a perfect life full of nothing but happiness. I think that's just, you know, the situation we're in. Mm -hmm. Hopefully we get to experience some happy moments and some happy days, maybe some happy years even. Hopefully we get some sense of connection with our loved ones. Hopefully we also get some pleasure, some amazing meals and some good laughs with our friends. But we might also experience a lot of other things. And I think that's just part of being human. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give for people? It feels like our conversation has been about Huga and also about happiness, but it's kind of overall, like, how do we get through life? How do we weather the, like, the ups and downs based on your research, because you're so deep in this? What advice would you give somebody today who's like, gosh, I, I, I do want to be a little happier? What could they do? In, in Denmark, we often talk about something called the ABC for mental health, which I think is the one of the sort of best universal advices we can give. It's, it's difficult to dish out a universal advice because it, sure. pe people are going to be in different situations. But I think this one is, is a good candidate. So the ABC for mental health stands for act, belong, commit. So it means doing something active, doing some, something together with other people. And as the theme of your podcast is, doing something meaningful. So one example would be you know, during the pandemic, I went to a forest with a group of friends so we could spread out, we could hang out, but not be in, in, in close distance. I call that together alone. Together alone. <laughs> or alone together. <laughs> so, uh, so we were active, we were out in the forest, we were together, and we were looking for edible mushrooms. So it was something meaningful, right? Something to put on our plates. So things like that, I think, is, is a good tip if we want to boost our mood on a daily basis. But of course, if we're unhappy with, with where we are in life, uh, we, we, we need other strategies as well. Love it. All right, Mike. So um, with that, I'd love to have you complete these three statements for me. The first is, better humans are. I would turn it around, actually, if I can. Ooh, I would say sure. happier humans are better humans. So can I turn it around like that? Yeah, of course. And so then you're leading me to my, my second statement for you to complete then. Happier work is? A good quality lawnmower and a big lawn to mow. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good metaphor. I'll let you use that one. All right. And then I'll ask you the last one or have you complete the last one with your happier shift. A happier world has? Less loneliness. Hmm. At least when we look at what are predictors of happiness, a sense of connection is one of the best predictors that we can find. And if I could have sort of one policy proposal, it would be that everybody gets an additional good friend. 
which is tricky from a policy point of view, but across countries, across cultures, having a sense of connection with, with other ones is often one of the keys to happiness. Love it. Thank you so much, Mike, for joining me. This was so fun. And I've I've learned a lot. I'm taking a lot away about both Huga, which I think my pronunciation's changed every time I've said it in this conversation, <laughs> and about happiness. <laughs> I will get it. I think I think you nailed it. At least one of the times. I've heard a lot of variations. I've heard uh Higgy, I've heard Huggy, and I think that's what it should feel like. So maybe we should all switch to a Huggy. huggy. Yeah. <laughs> That was best-selling author of A Little Book of Higa and founder of the Happiness Research Institute in Copenhagen, Mike Viking. One big thing before we go. This show is all about the ways in which we live better. And it's in service of being better to ourselves, better to our friends, better partners, better colleagues. And that starts with deciding you will be resourceful and curious enough to explore. This episode probably wouldn't have existed if I hadn't been honest about the fact that I was kind of dreading winter and that I needed some way to experience it differently. So go explore something you think could help you cultivate a better life. As you probably know by now, these things have a lot less to do with what you have and a lot more to do with who you're being. If you're inspired to Huga, your home, text this episode to a friend and help other people like you find our show by leaving us a rating before you go. Even better, write a one-sentence review telling me what Hugo might look like where you live. And as always, you can find me on LinkedIn writing about human potential and meaningful living. Everyday Better is a production of LinkedIn News. The show is produced by Alexis Ramdow. Our associate producer is Rafa Fariha. Asaf Gidron is our sound engineer. He makes sure we sound good in the studio. Joe DiGiorgi mixed our show. Enrique Montalvo is the executive producer of LinkedIn Editorial Productions. Dave Pond is head of news production. Courtney Coop is head of LinkedIn original audio and video. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. And I'm Leah Smart. Thanks for coming with me, and I'll see you next week.